Good morning, everybody, and welcome to the Thursday Morning Envy Pro Call. Today is February 1st. Wow. Um, and I'd like to welcome those of you that are here live, as well as those of you listening to this via recording, which, of course, you can do by subscribing to Motivitality on whatever podcast application you happen to use, or by visiting motivitality.com where you can listen to years and years and years worth of archives. Um, On that note, by the way, on the podcast thing, so apparently Google Podcast is going away, and they're making it all part of YouTube Podcasts. And I transferred over all my stuff from the Google Podcast over to YouTube. It was pretty easy to transfer the subscriptions. But then I went to a couple of the other podcast applications, and I started looking for Motor Vitality. You have to put the hyphen in um, if you're doing that. But I am going to, if you can't find it, I'm going to put a link on the podcast page that will allow you to go directly to a um, to the recordings. Of course, you can always go to motorvitality.com and listen to them anytime you want. Any of the arch- archived ones there. Um, but uh, um, anyway, there are there are a changes are happening in the podcast world apparently, um, and and I'm trying to keep up with them. So uh, for those of you, it sounds like we've got a lot of people coming on here, That probably people that have never joined us on the MV Pro Call. Um, I welcome you to to please not make this the only one you, you ever visit. We have this call every week, um, and it's basically just a conversation with uh, people from the industry. We don't talk product and we don't talk company unless we have a special guest. Um, and, uh, um, but we, we all just talk about the stuff that we all run into. Um, we're going to do things a little differently today uh, just because we do have a guest speaker, and I want to I get right to that. So um, Marianne Metzger has been a guest on our call before, and she always brings just a wealth of knowledge. She's, she's my go-to person when I have questions about laboratories or testing or contaminants um, that I need to know, you know, how to test for them or, or what the field test is or, or those types of things. Uh, Marianne worked for a long time at National Testing Laboratories. Um, she now works for Resentech. Um, worth managing their lab as well as doing like a billion other things for them. She's got a, a degree in um, environmental science and political science, um, but mostly she's just one of the smartest and nicest people that I know in the industry. So um, if you don't have a chance to talk to Mary, if you've never had a chance to talk or meet Marianne, please meet her at the shows or see her at the shows or, or reach out to her. She's just a wealth of knowledge. And we are honored to have you, Marianne, on our call today, um, talking specifically about coliform, and you and I were talking right before this this call. It's kind of I said you excited to talk about the what I like to refer to scientifically as the poop bacteria because I like the opportunity to say poop on a professional in a professional setting. Um, <laughs> I don't expect Marianne to necessarily say that, but <laughs> she's not me. Um, but uh, it, but uh, I thought what you said, Marianne, was kind of funny, and I'm gonna I'm gonna have you start off with that because. Funny, but also interesting. So, so we're talking about coliform bacteria today. Why did you tell me it was going to be fun to talk about this? I thought that was kind of interesting. Well, I thought it was going to be nice not to talk about PFOS for a moment. <laughs> um, we kind of talked about this is one of the retro contaminants. Um, and, and I think it's kind of important, like we, we, we discussed, it's like, yeah, we've got all these new contaminants that are coming out, the emerging contaminants, but, you know, they're still the old school contaminants and they're still showing up. So it's not something that's ever going to go away. Yeah, 
I, and I think it's important to understand exactly what you're saying. I mean, yes, PFAS is the hot topic right now and all these emerging contaminants, but, but these other things are still there, and they're things that we have to worry about. So, so we have one of our listeners – by the way, um, I'm going to ask everybody to mute yourselves, please, um, unless you have a question later on just so we don't get the background noise. Um, and uh, so please, if you're on the road, that way it's uh, not distracting to everybody. But um, the uh, – you know, um, we had one of our one of our regular uh, listeners and participants on this call ask about testing for coliform. So maybe we could start off right with that, and, and you could explain what coliform is, what it isn't, what kind of problems do we run into. I mean, just teach us about coliform. Okay. So when people are looking like they want to have their well tested for bacteria, the typical go-to is going to be coliform because it's it's really impractical to test for all the dangerous bacteria that could be potentially in your well water. So um, when they were coming up with the regulations under the Safe Drinking Water Act, they kind of settled on this method for coliform bacteria. And then um, we also look for E. coli or fecal bacteria, um, or as you like to say, poop bacteria. Oh, you did. I'm so <laughs> proud of you. <laughs> um, so anyways, it, it, the reason that we look for this is it's, it's an economical way to kind of screen for bacteria. Um, it follows the same sort of life cycle that like the dangerous bacteria follow, like fecal bacteria are actually um, found in the intestines of mammals. So, you know, that's where it comes from. Um, it's, it's a less expensive test to run and you get kind of an indication of what, what the water quality is, if there's potentially sewage, if there's potentially these, more dangerous bacteria that are in the water. So they're, they're used as indicator bacterias. They indicate a possible presence of other infectious disease organisms that might be in the water. So typically when, when I see people who are testing for coliform bacteria and it comes back positive, you know, that's not a reason to, to freak out. Everybody's getting sick, whatever. Coliform bacteria typically are not gonna make you sick. Um, it's usually the E. coli's and the fecal bacterias that are going to be more dangerous to you and actually cause il illness. Um, also, by the way, I mean, people can build up a tolerance to that as well. So I've, I've had many instances where we've come back and we found E. coli in the water and, you know, people say, I've been drinking this for 20 years and I've never been sick. Um, you may be drinking it for 20 years and never be sick because you've built up that tolerance to that bacteria. But let's say, you know, somebody comes and visits you and drinks that, back, that water, they might not have the same reaction. So it's kind of an important distinction as well because I've had that come up many times in the past. Um, Marianne, do you mind if, just really quick, um, can you explain the difference between E. coli and um, the other bacteria? Like E. coli is more the, the bacteria that lives in the gut. Um, so that's, that's, that's more of a poop bacteria than the coliform bacteria is because coliform bacteria is literally everywhere. It's on our hands. It's in the soil. Um, you know, it lives on all kinds of surfaces. Whereas E. coli and, and specifically other fecal bacteria, E. coli is a subset of fecal bacteria. 
that's the one that actually lives in the intestines. It goes through the, the whole system. So that's, that's a true fecal bacteria that can cause illness. Does that answer your question, Jen? I hope. Yes, um, yes it does. Sorry, I muted <laughs> myself. <laughs> um, the other thing I should mention is because because I mentioned like the coliform bacteria is so present in our environment that you can accidentally contaminate your own sample, um, you know, by touching the inside of the cap, um, by touching the top of the bottle when you're collecting it, if you don't properly sterilize the bottle, if you don't wash your hands. I mean, there's all kinds of ways you could potentially contaminate your your own sample when you're collecting a coliform bacteria test. Um, so it's really important to to read through those instructions and make sure that you follow them to a T. Um, there are instances uh, in the testing methods out there that you could get a false positive. So there sometimes are some particular bacteria, non-coliform bacteria, that will pop positive. So I've, I've had many of instances where, you know, there's, you know, we've treated, we've tested at the source, and then we've tested after treatment, and the source tests negative, and then the treated water tests positive, and we know that can't be. So what we found out is we were there was an introduction of this non-coliform bacteria that we had to speciate out to determine, like, in fact, there is no coliform in the sample; it's just a a non-coliform bacteria that interferes with the test that the lab was actually running. So occasionally you will run into that as well. Um, I don't know if we I want to talk on about that, On that note, it's it's sort of important, I guess, to, to recognize that not all bacteria are bad. In fact, every pretty much every water sample is going to have some level of bacteria in it, right? Correct, yeah. I mean, and and sort of the other bacteria here that we probably don't test for on a more regular basis is heterotrophic bacteria. Um, and a lot of times like labs use that and other, like other industries use that as sort of like um, how much bacteria is actually in the water. And that's traditionally where you'll get a count of bacteria. Um, I'm gonna say like a lot of times when you're running a coliform E. coli test, um, there's a couple of different ways that you can run it in the laboratory depending on the results that you want to get. So uh, you could get a presence-absence test, or typically the other option is to get a, an estimated colony count or a more pro the most probable number. So they'll give you an estimate of how many bacteria could be in the water. And then heterotrophic plate count takes a look at all the bacteria, so coliforms and non-coliforms, and kind of gives you an idea of what the bacterial load is in your water. That's important when you're doing disinfection, um, so that you know how much back or how much disinfectant to use. So it's you know when you were looking at the now a lot of times because private wells right and I mean just about every state that I've ever worked with every client I've ever worked in every, in every state a new home or to close on a new home requires coliform and nitrates. Um, yep. You know, some have other stuff, uh, you know, arsenic or, or, you know, different things that might be in the water, but it's almost always coliform and nitrates. Um, and you, um, you know, so that that's private wells will typically have that. Is it necessary for somebody to, once they do that new home or, you know, or buy a house and they, they get a, a negative test, which in my experience comes back about half the time positive, and it's usually because the person who took the sample 
didn't do the things that you talked about doing, washing your hands or washing right. you know, your hands. They would need to wash their hands if they're pulling the sample, <laughs> I guess. Um, and, you know, or, or even just disinfecting the lip of the bottle or, or the faucet. Um, they, uh, I, I took one. I made that mistake, and I think I talked to you about it. We had a positive result that we had sent to you that we were working with a client a couple years ago, and we sent a sample that came back, and you asked me, did you disinfect the kitchen faucet? No. <laughs> and I said, no better. But it came back positive, and we went back out. We, we took the sample as close to the water entering the building as we could, disinfected the spigots and the bottles and washed our hands and sent it back in, came back negative. You know, and, yeah. and so that's probably the most common. Wouldn't you, would you agree that the the positive result is almost always, not almost always, Sibling I don't know, error. I don't know, what percentage yeah. would you say? Uh, you know, I mean, I guess it really depends on who's collecting the sample. If it's a water treatment guy who who collects bacteria samples all week long, you know, that guy's not going to make that mistake. But, like, if yeah. you're talking homeowners collecting their own samples, I would say it's pretty high because they don't like to read instructions, apparently. Yeah. Um, so I, I would say probably 50-50 um, in terms of, of, of positives, you know, false positives for, for sampling error. So what would you say is the best? Oh, I'm sorry. No, go ahead, Jim. No, hi, this is Ken oh, Stice. I, I, I had a question. Hi, Ken. Hi. Um, so it's the Ken and Jen show. Um, so <laughs> what is the best practice for uh, disinfecting the sores? I know I've seen where some people will have rubbing alcohol wipes and some people use a blowtorch. So what would you say would be best practice for disinfecting? Okay, so so there's a couple of things. There's also, like, depending on if you're collecting it for, like, a public water supply, uh, you know, maybe a transient, non-transient system, um, you have to follow the state requirements. And some states will tell you, you can't use isopropyl alcohol. You have to use a chlorine solution. Um, so it all depends on that. Um, also, like, one thing to, to keep in mind is when you're disinfecting spigots, make sure if, it, if you're going to use a blowtorch, make sure it's metal and it's not a, a plastic <laughs> or other composite-type material. Right. Um, you might want to make sure that there's no concerns about methane being in the water. You don't want to blow anything up. Um, my sort of preference... I didn't think is, of that one. <laughs> uh, believe me, I've had these conversations before, so uh, you live and you learn. But, uh, you know, my preference is to use isopropyl alcohol, especially, like, for homeowners. It's readily available. It's, you know, easy to use. It's not, you know, dangerous to use. So that's that's typically where I would end up. I mean, but obviously if you're collecting outside from a hose bib that's metal, you can use a blowtorch. Um, you know, it really depends on your preference and also, like, the regulations, what they say. Ken, you had a question? Ken? May have Stacey, lost Stacey him. here, though. Oh, oh, Stacy, go ahead. Um, oh, Ken, did I hear you? Hang I, on, I, Stacey. Ken, did I hear you? Okay, I'm sorry. I thought I heard he he had jumped in there a couple times. Okay, go ahead, Stacy. That's okay. I was gonna say I never really thought about a blowtorch, but if I'm doing an outside spigot, I'll normally do alcohol wipes, run the water some more, and then use um, a candle lighter, the long candle lighter 
lighter things to mm-hmm. really burn off the alcohol off that and really give it a good, hopefully, disinfection and then run the water some more. As it, yeah, as, as I like to run the water in between as well. Uh-huh. Uh, and mm-hmm. I, I think using both, you know, as far as I'm concerned, more is better um, when it mm-hmm. comes to this. You know, you, you can't disinfect it too much. Um, yeah. You know, the only other thing I should caution people against is, like, when they are using, like, chlorine especially, mm-hmm. make sure, like, you're not collecting volatile organic chemicals <laughs> directly after your bacteria because um, you could potentially contaminate that sample if you use a chlorine solution. Um, oh, uh-huh. Yeah. So just, just things to, to kind of look out for. But, yeah, I, I don't think it's a problem using a combination of both both the isopropyl alcohol and flame. That's on the spigot, not on your fingers, right? So right. alcohol and blowtorch on the fingers, probably not a good idea. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, isopropyl is not bad on the fingers. Yeah. So lighter. We're not flaming way out. Marianne, the the EPA um, requirements, primary drinking water requirements, say that you can have no more than 5% of samples. And that's always struck me as, I mean, we know that coliform is, is itself is an indicator bacteria, but right. um, but that sample is not zero. I mean, I would expect the goal would be zero, but the, I mean, that means that if you have 100 glasses of water and five of, five of them potentially could have coliform in there, um, you know, I mean, that, that's how do we address that or, or talk about that or, or, you know, is there more to that regulation than, than, than just a 5% maximum rule? Well, I kind of think that the 5% is based on the fact that there are sampling errors and there are false positives with some of the testing methods out there. So they give them a little bit more leeway. Also, when you're talking about coliform, I mean, these coliform in general is not like the disease-causing organism. So it's a an indicator. So anytime they get a coliform, they do have to notify public. They do have to take some sort of action, you know, to rectify that. They have to immediately collect extra samples to confirm that. So I, I think the 5% really is more like the leeway based on, you know, the fact that, yes, we do get sampling errors, and, yes, there are false positives with the method itself. Yeah. What about field testing? I mean, I, I get that, you know, because we, Motor Vitality carries test kits, we get that question all the time, you know, is there a, a, a test? And we do sell some. Um, you and I were talking about this the other day, and there's um, – I actually have a couple here that I plan on doing a nice little experiment that I talked to you about. You know, I'm going to basically – what I've, I've got two of them, and I'm going to um, spit in one and, I don't know, put RO water in another and test the other and just see if they see if they culture. I mean, that, that would probably do it, right? Spitting in it or, or whatever would probably oh, yeah. put coliform in there. So, you know, and I, I'm just curious what it's going to look like. But, but I was reading the instructions, and these definitely do not, you know, they're, they're not an immediate result. You're not going out to the house and pouring water in there and going, yep, you have bacteria. I mean, it takes days in order to to um, to to see the results on that, do you have any experience with field tests? What are your do you have any suggestions for for types of field tests? Not necessarily brand names, but but you know the type what works better or suggestions on whether they're a good idea or not a good idea to use. So so there's a lot of different kinds of field test kits out there. Um, I mean I've tested a couple. Some are good. Some are not so good. 
And I would say, like, the ones that you kind of want to look for are the color change ones. And what you kind of want to look for one that's going to change color to, like, a, you know, something totally different. Like, a, a lot of times the ones that we use in the laboratory, like, I, I guess I'll mention IDEX is a pretty popular col coliform test that I'm going to say 90% of labs use. Um, it changes to a yellow color. So when we're talking about yellow color, like you've got tannins in water, you've got iron in water, you know, that can mask that color change or or you, you might indicate something's positive when it's not. So I would say, you know, microbiologists and people in the labs that run that are, are more sensitive to that potential interference versus out in the field. So there are field kits where it'll turn a, a brighter, like a bright blue or a purple color. That's what I would look for, something that's going to be a definitive color change. Um, and I know there's a couple of um, kits out there. There's one, a company called Ready Cult, which is a, a competitor to IDEX. Um, theirs turns a purple color, I believe. So that's a good one for the field, especially somebody who's not an experienced microbiologist can look and see, okay, there's a clear color change. And how would you say, I mean, generally when we're testing for stuff like that, I usually recommend, and I, I'm curious about your, your thoughts on this, if you have a positive result on something like that, I usually recommend then going to, uh, you know, to verify those results. I mean, if I'm a water treatment guy and I test something positive for bacteria, I'm not a certified lab, you know, so right. I, I would then say, I would usually recommend, okay, I, I, I tested positive, I think I would definitely take this and, and test again at a lab to verify. Um, what's your thoughts on on field testing in general, on whether we should be doing it, on on you know the the pros and cons of it? How do we talk about it with the customer? Well, field bacteria, and it, it all depends. I mean, like bacteria has a short holding time, so as you have thirty hours from the time you collect it to the time the lab has to start analyzing it. So if you're located next to a lab and you use them, that that's great because you're getting the sample to them quickly. But if you have to ship it out. You have to time everything correctly. So using a field kit, you know, is a good good indicator. Um, plus there's the expensive shipping and all that. So I think field test kits are a great thing. If it comes back negative, you know, um, there's not a lot of false negatives in those tests. So I would say you're, you're good. But if you do get a positive result, yes, it is a health-based contaminant and you should have a certified laboratory confirm that result. Additionally, I mean, if we're talking about a private well, I would take additional action immediately in case there is actually bacteria there. I mean, you know, chlorinating the well or recommending a UV or whatever it happens to be, but um, make sure that you explain that to the customer. Like, there's yeah. a potential that this organism could be present. You know, it may not cause illness, but here's the thing with bacteria. It could be there one day and be gone the next day. You, right. you just don't know when it's going to show up. Are you so? You mentioned two treatment methods. I mean, is there a better way if you have persistent? Because I mean, in my experience, that's that's usually the way to do. You know, if you're on a private well, you test positive for coliform, you reshock the well, and it goes away. And, and the thing is, most people don't. I mean, I know the EPA recommends you test for coliform once a year, I believe. Um, most homeowners don't ever do that. I don't think, and um, I never did. I mean, when I was in my, I was in my house for 16 years on a private well, and I tested for it the first time, and and never did uh, after that. You know, and I'm in the industry. Yeah. Um, is there a way? 
a recommended treatment that you know will our, our coliform very easily uh, you know, deactivated or, or or taken care of with uh, UV or I mean what's your what would be the suggested treatment method for for handling persistent bacterial issues? I, I would say UV is optimal. Um, you know, it's something that doesn't, you're not adding chlorine to the water consistently, so you're not creating, you know, byproducts using that. Um, it's just kind of like that added safeguard, especially when you're thinking like, yeah, I, I shocked my well this year, and let's just say I actually go back and test it next year, and it's positive again. Um, you know, keeping that uh, UV in there is going to help protect you. Um should that bacteria show up unexpectedly and you're not testing for it because nobody wants to test their water consistently. And I will yeah. say, you know, just being in the industry for this long, um, in the beginning, like people would do the same thing you just mentioned. I'm, you know, I tested my well when I moved in and, you know, it's been 20 years and I, I'm good, but I'm going to say like, I'm seeing more of a pattern of people testing their water annually. And it's not just for bacteria. You know, there more and more people are becoming concerned about the water quality, so they are following those types of recommendations. Yeah, um, Scott, I wanted to make sure this was uh, we this was the topic that you had suggested. Which, by the way, I love when you guys suggest topics for these calls. So please send them to me. Let me know. Um, I, it makes it way easier for me not to have to come up with, with topics on my own. Um, so I love that. But, Scott, did you have any questions about this specifically that, that Marianne could answer or that we could talk about? Well, I just want to make sure that we're using the right word track when we go out and see somebody with a well. Uh, because, I mean, as of right now, we, we do not have the ability to test for um, coliform or E. coli in the field. Um, and so when we I can have help with that, by the way, Scott. Uh, well, we can talk, um, uh, but when we go out and have the conversation, um, you know, typically if they're calling us out, you know, it's, it stinks, it stains, there's, there's something aesthetic with it. And so when we have those conversations, you know, this is what will take care of the problem that you brought me out here for. Um, however, we don't have the ability to test for coliform or E. coli, which is a bacteria. Um, uh, the city puts chlorine in the water to disinfect it. You don't have that with well water. Uh, because it is raw water coming out of the ground. Um, I highly recommend um, adding a UV light um, as an extra layer of protection. Um, so even if there's um, bacteria in there um, or if there's not or if it shows up later, um, it's an insurance policy. It's an extra layer of protection for you and your family. Is that the correct way to talk to them about that? I like that. I like the insurance policy. Um because, you know, it could be, like I said, it could be there today and not there tomorrow, and in two more weeks it shows up. So it, I think the, the UV as an insurance policy is a, a great way to to talk about it. Um, and I like the way that you said, um, so if somebody has lived there for 20 years, um, I've been drinking this for 20 years and it's never made me sick. Well, you've built up right. the tolerance. But yeah. if somebody comes and visits um, who is not used to the water and drinks it, it could make them sick. Yep. Okay. I mean, it's the same sort of thing like when we when we go to Mexico and drink the water down there. They're, they they built up a tolerance to the bacteria, the natural bacteria that's in their water. It's going to make us sick. <laughs> so it's it's sort of the same thing. Um, just the different strains of, of bacteria that are present. 
and and yeah, you definitely do build up a tolerance to it. This is exactly what I needed. Thank you so much. Okay, we got about two minutes. Any other questions for Marianne on this topic? Uh, this is Patty in Florida. Just one quick question. You mentioned the 30-hour span from time of collection to time of testing. What's magic about the 30 hours? Is, is that everything dying because of lack of oxygen or lack of food, or is, what, what's going on with that 30-hour period? So usually it's the food source. Um, so like, and, and the coliform bacteria are very resilient. So like, don't be fooled. Like you could get a test that shows up at the lab five days later and they test it for coliform bacteria and it's there. Um, it's just a matter of like how much food is in that water. Let's just say how much bacteria, where they are in the growth cycle. So if the bacteria are multiplying and multiplying and the food source gets scarce, then they start to die off. Um, so that can affect, one, whether they're present or not, or two, if you're actually doing a count, the estimated colony counts could be off if you get past that 30 hours. Um, to me, present absence is usually the most key thing, whether they're just present or not. Um, but sometimes you do need to know, like, how much bacteria is there depending on how you're treating it. But, yeah, it's usually the food source and where they are in the life cycle. That's where that 30 hours comes in. Thank Excellent. you. So I, I did have an, um, Elaine or Ken. Um, I, I just got a, a text message. I know you guys are trying to trying – to, are you able to hop on and ask your question real quick? And I saw that you guys had a question here. Uh, well, well, yeah, but Ken says it's going to be too long, so he'd better just have the contact <laughs> so we can just ask directly because he thinks it's going to be a long question. Okay. Um, well, shoot, I, I, I wish we could have – well, I mean, Marion, do you have another five minutes? Because no, we are recording. I, I actually have another meeting, like, that's going to start, like, now. <laughs> okay, so, um, so, okay, so, yeah. So do you have contact information then, Marianne, that we can – where if they have further questions, they could, um, they could hop in there and, uh, and send you a question? Yeah, absolutely. If they want to reach out to me, my email address is – M is in Marianne, and then my last name, Metzger, so another M-E-T, Z is in zebra, G is in girl, E-R, and that's at Resintech, R-E-S-I-N-T-E-C-H.com. And I will put that in the description of this, uh, of this call as well when I get it uploaded. So, Elaine, thank you so much, or I'm sorry, Mary, Elaine, thank you too. Um, they're up at 6.30 in the morning to listen to this, or 5.30 in the morning, I guess. 5.30 in the morning to listen to this, so thank you. But, Marianne, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Um, as I said, you're always a wealth of knowledge, and um, I really appreciate your, your feedback and the information that you've given us. Um, everybody else, thank you so much. Be safe. We will talk to you next week, if not before. So thank you, everybody. Thanks, everyone.